As you know, uh, beloved listeners, it is possible to simultaneously care about the casualties on both sides of a war. It is also possible to be an environmental scientist and committed conservationist, yet feel deeply for the young men sent to kill whales. And that was the discovery that Scottish writer Sandy Winterbottom made about herself when uh, she sailed to Antarctica on a tall ship adventure. Sandy was shocked to learn what happened to, uh, to whales and then to the men who killed them. Now, Sandy is a former environmental science academic and she's written a book called The Two-Headed Whale, Life, Loss and the Tangled Legacy of Whaling in the Antarctica. Let's, let's start with one pretty appalling fact. Whalers went to the Antarctica at the start of the um, 20th century because they'd killed most of the whales in the Arctic. Yes, that's that's true. Yes, the um, the a lot of the whaling ships came from Norway and Dundee in Scotland um, up to the Arctic, and by the early twentieth century, most of those whales had been killed, or certainly the decimation had uh, had got to a point where it really wasn't commercially viable for them to be whaling in the Arctic oceans anymore, and that's when their sites basically turned to the Antarctic, where they they were very plentiful. In fact, Carl um, Anton Larsen describes sailing to the island of South Georgia in 1904 and whales absolutely surrounding his ship in curiosity. So it wasn't surprising that that's where their sights turned. Now, Sandy, this was uh, possible because the, the Brits had been planting flags as they were wont to do and uh, Captain Cook comes into the story. As, as the subtitle of the book says, it's quite a tangled legacy in terms of the um, the claimed ownership of all the islands and the the Antarctic continent itself. There was uh, certainly the Brits were were very fond of their flag planting and, and creating ownership, but of course, once they discovered um, that there were resources there, um, in particular the whales, then that's when the sort of um, the claims really came into play, and um, Britain actually, I think. It was in 19, about 1908, um, planted their claim on the island of South Georgia, which was really fundamental in the, in the world of mid-20th century Antarctic whaling. Not every listener is entirely familiar with the, the geography of the region. When you uh, tell us where South Georgia actually is. So South Georgia lies about 700 nautical miles um, from the, the very tip, southern tip of the Tierra del Fuego um, to the very southern tip of South America. So it lies east of that, about 700 nautical miles east of that, um, and really isolated island very much on its own in the middle of the Antarctic Ocean. We should uh, make the point that Argentina and Norway were already whaling uh, before the Brits. Yeah, there were certainly there were certainly uh, quite a lot of ships that went down to the Antarctic. So it was kind of a, a bit of a ban- bonanza, really. So Larsen was a was a Norwegian, and he set up the first whaling station on South Georgia in 1904. Um, so so that was the first one. But subsequent to that, the the British 
sensing that there was money to be made, um, reaffirmed their claim on the island of South Georgia so that they could they could effectively earn commission, as it were, from the whales that were killed there. There are many shocking things about the story where you are telling me. But for me, one of the most shocking is how young these Scottish whalers could be. That was the thing that really jolted me into to looking into this story in the first place. And it was once um, when I was on the island of South Georgia and it was really discovering the graves of, of the young men that, that died on the island and, and who, who came really from not very far from, from where I lived. But most of the, the um, men that went from Scotland, they they effectively started as mess boys and, and whalers from the age of about 14 or 15, so they were very young. One of the graves you visited belonged to a young Scottish fellow called Anthony Ford. Introduce us to him and his family. I think that was that was the real turning point for me I, I, because when I was on the island of South Georgia, all, we visited one of the whaling stations, which was incredibly shocking both in terms of the amount of mess that had been left there but also the um the scale the industrial scale of the whaling that took place so i was i i had these huge feelings of of anger really that this had happened but it was when i was ambling around the graveyard uh, attached to the whaling station that I came across the grave of Anthony Ford, um, who came from Edinburgh, and he was 19 when it, it said on this gravestone that he was 19 when he died. When actually, when I did the research, he was only 18 when he died, but he'd already been a whaler for four years by that point. And his family were living in hardened circumstances back in Edinburgh. Yeah, very much so. And I think that was really typical of the time in that the um the Scotland was really emerging from a, a post-war poverty so there was you know disease was rife um, vitamin de- deficiencies like rickets were really rife at that time and of course many families had lost their um their main breadwinners to the war so there was a lot of kind of single single mothers um trying to make ends meet so it was it was it was the poverty was really shocking You would later do a lot of research and then meet up with a group of former whales, some of whom had uh, worked with the young bloke. What did you learn about what their lives were like? Yeah, it it was a really interesting one because I didn't, I I hadn't realised how recent the history of the Antarctic whaling actually was. Um, So Anthony Ford died in 1952, which meant that actually, because the men were so young that that went to sea, many of them are still alive today. So there's a... um, there's a club called the Ex Salvesons uh, Whalers Club, Ex Whalers Club, and um, they meet. I discovered that they meet quite regularly in Edinburgh, and I contacted them, and they invited me along, which was which was really quite surprising. So I went with I went to meet them with quite a great deal of trepidation, knowing that these were whalers, and I was <laughs> really an undercover vegan <laughs> for the meeting as well. So it was it was quite an interesting thing to do for me to do um, and I really didn't know what to expect but what I was met with was an incredible 
amount of kindness. They were just they, they were they were men that really had had went to sea as young boys and um, in in a great deal of hardship. And um, they were incredibly generous in sharing their stories with me. But you also make the point that they were reluctant to tell you the worst of their stories. Absolutely, yeah. And, and I think there's the there's be men together. You know, there tends to be particularly of that um, that era. There's a lot of bravado and a lot of covering up, and 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 they're like fishermen's tales. So essentially, you know, they would tell these grand stories of of their adventures and all the mishaps, but they they wouldn't really open up. They weren't that keen on opening up on the the downside of it. So it it, it kind of took a little bit of scratching beneath the surface to to discover that. What one story comes from a doctor. In 1950, writing about the appalling conditions uh, for men at uh, Leith Harbour. And uh, there's, for example, it's revealed that an injured employee might have to wait a year and then endure a long trip home for treatment. Yes, there there were many many stories of men that were very badly injured. There was there was you know very little in terms of health and safety in those days. So and and they were working with huge industrial scale equipment that was um, and and sharp knives. So many men were injured, and of course they're doing this at, at sea on the Antarctic Ocean. So it, you know. Um, knives and, and saws being bandied around on, on a really unstable surface. So there were a huge amount of injuries. Um, and of course, once they were injured, they were, there was always a doctor on board the factory ship. But of course, they weren't, you know, the doctor's skills and what he could do were very limited um, in terms of being able to treat the men. So um, when they were injured, they were often shipped back to the hospital at Leith Harbour in South Georgia. And they, while they could have been flown home from South America and, and actually had proper treatment for their injuries, the whaling company bosses wouldn't fund that. You know, it would it would cost them too much money. So the men would have to wait in the in the very makeshift hospital in South Georgia until. Um, some of the supply ships would go home. So, and there's definitely stories of some of them waiting up to a year to get home for treatment. I'm talking to Sandy Win- Winterbottom, and I'd like you to introduce me to an eyewitness called Ian. Ian, yes, I met Ian when I very first met the whalers, and and he his was one of the very first stories that moved me to to, to really understand. The, the conditions and the experience of Anthony Ford, who, whose, whose story I was researching. Um, and Ian went to sea again from about the age of 14 or 15 um, and following in the footsteps of Scott and Shackleton and all the adventures. And it was really his dream to become a, a whaler and visit the Antarctic Oceans. Um, and he started work on one of the factory ships there, but he was transferred about mid-season to one of the catcher boats. So these were the tiny boats that would go out into these big oceans and, and harpoon the whales. Um, and one of his first encounters on that catcher boat, they um, harpooned a, a blue whale, a female blue whale. And as she was pulled into the side of the ship, she wasn't 
quite dead. I mean, it did take them a long time to to die these whales once they were harpooned quite often. And as he was on the uh, standing at the rails of the ship, she turned over and just looked him in the eye. And when he was telling me this story, his, the tears were just streaming down his face. And he said, I must be one of the few people to look into the eye of a whale like that. And he said, as soon as she looked at me, I knew she was another soul. She was another living being. And he said, and I never wanted to go whaling again. Um, and it was very moving. Mm. Weren't there not regulations to prevent that sort of thing happening? There were regulate. There were some regulations in place. The International Whaling Commission was set up in 1946, and and they had limits on the amount of whales that that were caught. There were innovations like the exploding harpoons. The the harpoons um, eventually had grenades in them that would explode um, on impact or just after impact that was supposed to kill the whales quite quickly. And sometimes they did, but, you know, whales are a huge creature and often they suffered dreadfully and, and could take up to half an hour at least to die. And there are reports of some whales not even dying once they'd been dragged back to the factory ship um, and really being towed astern from the factory ships waiting for processing, but actually still alive. So they, they suffered terribly. Now, the whaling regulations at the time were, were flaunted? They certainly were. I mean, the International Whaling Commission, once it was set up, the, um, they, they put in place regulations, but which meant that they couldn't, the, the whalers couldn't kill pregnant um, females, they couldn't kill nursing mothers. But of course, in huge seas, how are they going to tell which, which whales are pregnant, which ones are nursing? Um, but also the whaling commission regulations were voluntary. So countries um, subscribed or signed, signed the treaties on a voluntary basis. So there were countries like Russia that didn't um, sign up for it. Our Aristotle Anassis had a, a whaling ship called the Olympic Challenger um, who weren't signed up to any of these treaties. But of course, what that meant was because they weren't obeying the rules, it meant that everybody almost had a bit of a licence to flaunt the rules a bit. And they weren't really any consequences for breaching these regulations anyway, because the whaling inspectors on the ship didn't really have any authority. It's interesting that these days the whalers you spoke to are very against whaling and they feel shame and sorrow, but also sometimes mixed with pride. Now, the whales soon disappeared in the Antarctica just as they had in the Arctic. Yes, I mean, interestingly, um, after Carl Anton Larsen visited in 1904 and described the whale sound surrounding the ship, uh, even as early as 1908, the humpback whales were pretty much decimated around the island of South Georgia. Um, and although um, it, by the 1960s there were very few whales left, it still took until about 1986 for a moratorium to come in place to be put in place for Antarctic whaling. So it was 78 years, really, it took since the first alarm signals were sounded by the scientists. And the Japanese were still there in 2018. Yes, of course, the, the Japanese again withdrew, for, withdrew from the International Whaling Commission treaties and, and they were still whaling in Antarctica up until 2018. Um, and there's, there's a lot of um, the... the a sea Shepherd organisation were the ones down there in their boats harassing the Japanese whalers 
um, and, and bringing attention to the fact that they were still Ill- illegally whaling in Antarctic waters. But it's, it's very difficult to um, enforce international law. So al- although it was illegal, um, there was nobody to enforce it. So it took organisations like Sea Shepherd to go in and actually tackle the, the whalers there. Now, when you've uh, reread Melville's Moby Dick, I want you to move on to Sandy Winterbottom's fine book, The Two-Headed Whale, Life, Loss and the Tangled Legacy of Whaling in the Antarctica, published by Greystone. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.